The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to SiriusXM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Heavy is the head that wears the crown of a keeper of an icon. And the designer crown is likely weighty when you're Klaus Busse, the man placed in charge of working with his talented team of designers to set a direction that is Maserati. Maserati is Italy. Maserati is a statement. And Maserati was in need of a design recharge. And if the latest products are any example, the direction coming from Klaus and his team is directly pointed at a rebirth. There are a healthy number of reviewers and critics who said that the MC20, just as the latest example, is a Maserati masterpiece. A stunner in many ways. I mean, it handles very nicely. Yeah. You give it the input, it does exactly what you tell it to yeah. do. Welcome to the episode of JL's Garage, the car featuring today. The 2022 Maserati MC20, a really good-looking car. You know, I'm a big fan of this, Mark. If you've been to this website before, you've seen my 1962 Maserati. And these two actually have a lot in common. You can see the family resemblance. The kind of momentum coming out of the MC20 is positioning the iconic brand into many conversations that were lacking over the last few years. There is a sense that Maserati is returning to its rightful place in the automotive hierarchy. It's a survivor which is appropriate given that its lead designer is also a survivor of sorts. He has navigated the twists and turns of the automotive world better than most, having circumvented the Daimler Chrysler Fiat Chrysler Stellantis changes and still thrived. Actually, he's used all those adventures as moments to learn, adapt, understand, and appreciate the cultural experiences. Klaus Busse has designed interiors for Ram trucks and exteriors for Maserati sports cars. He's lived in Michigan and in Turin. He's also appreciated his mentors and teachers and absorbed all aspects of cars and culture along the way, rising to a level that has him putting his mark on a legend. Today, we sit down with Klaus for a conversation about the direction of the brand, his excitement for EVs, and his own passion and ambition for car design in general. Maserati's keeper of the design flame, an avid sneaker collector, Formula One admirer, and a talented leader. Hello, my name is Klaus Busse, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. If I could imagine being a car designer, I'd want to be tall and cool and have a German accent and live in Italy working on Maseratis. Since I'm not any of that, Klaus, I'll just ask what it's like to be Klaus Busse. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what an intro. Uh, I don't know where, where to start on, on, on that opening um, let me put it this way. Uh, what is it like to be the head of design for Maserati? It's an absolute dream. Um, it's a burden, it's a responsibility, but above all, it's a childhood dream come true because Maserati was certainly one of those brands that's been with me since I grew up, you know, from the Shamals and the Bitubos in the 80s when I was a teenager. So to be here in Italy and actually having an input in the future of this amazing brand is, is an absolute dream. What is the adjustment like to living in Italy? You, you lived in North America for 10 years, obviously grew up in Germany, and I want to get into some of your history. But now that you have been immersed in the Italian culture uh, for several years now, uh, I know that's had an impact on you. And in fact, you've said a lot of your inspiration doesn't necessarily come from looking at cars on the street, but perhaps having an espresso at the Piazza in Torino and looking at dress and fashion and Tell me, tell me how it's inspiring you. How, how is Italy changing you as a designer? You know, what you're referring to is an important point. You know, you're, you're speaking about the piazzas and, and me trying to absorb or having tried to absorb the Italian culture. The reason that's relevant is um, this is my third uh, physical location to work as a designer after Germany, North America. And I think one of the biggest challenges for international designers like me is to make sure that we represent also the culture of where we come from. Now, some brands might elect not to do that, but the brands I've had the pleasure to work with, whether it was Mercedes, but also, you know, brands like Jeep in the US, it's so important 
that they represent where they come from. So in the case of Maserati, of course, it's a very Italian luxury brand. So for me, it was very important over the last seven years to fully immerse myself into Italian culture, to understand what makes an Italian design Italian, but beyond just car design, the full culture. And that's why we're coming back to your point. That's why it has been and continues to be such an important part to just sit at the um, piazza, have an espresso or an aperitivo. And, and what I love about when, when you say I'm, I like to watch what people are wearing, I'll give you an example of how I would compare Italy to Germany. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump over the US. Uh, when you tell my friends in Germany that blue is the color of the year, they will wear a blue suit. When you tell the Italians that blue is the color of the year, they will, they will wear blue socks. Okay, so there's much more creativity in, in fashion and such uh, so much more self-confidence in how they wear it. So for me, it's an absolute pleasure to observe that and to apply that to design. So beyond socks and, um, and statements that are different than the rest of the world, what else have you learned being immersed there? How is Italy different and how does that apply from a cultural aspect to everything that you do on vehicles? Well, you know, in Germany, we, vehicle design is a very progressive business. Uh, there's the pursuit of perfection. When a brand like Mercedes would launch a new vehicle, let's say the S-Class, the flagship, they would always make sure they show you the previous generations because it's always an evolution into one direction, the pursuit of perfection. When you go to America, uh, America historically has been very much about style, but even going beyond cars, American design has been very much about uh, honest approach, honest use of material, whether it's the Eames chair where wood is not decoration, but wood is the chair, the Airstream trailer where aluminum is the, the trailer, not just decoration. And now coming to Italy, Italy has had an interesting journey with, with car design because the Italians, when I spoke, for example, with Giorgetto Giugiaro, that you, some of you might know that name, the if, uh, probably most famous car designer in the world. And, and I talked to him, I said, so what's Italian design for you? And he laughed at me. He said, there is no Italian design. And I, and I challenged him. But what he then explained for me is what Italian design is, because he told me that Italian design is about doing the best you can do in that moment. You don't look back. You only look forward. But what that created is, and you can take any Italian brand, especially when you look at the dramatic change from the 60s to the 70s. In the 60s, you had these beautiful sculptured, hand-sculpted cars. And there was this incredible break to the 70s when suddenly the service became flat and they did all this uh, kept forward rear engine um, wedge design. You know, there were the Gandinis, the Giugiaros, et cetera. So to be able to say, well, look at this. In 1968, we had the most beautiful car ever. But you guess what? We're not going to build on that. We're going to completely ignore that and throw that away and do something completely radically different. This kind of audacity, this courage to always live in the moment and not look back, that very much is Italian design for me. Uh, so well said. So where is Italian design today? Not just from a Maserati standpoint, but from a holistic standpoint. So I think what you see from, from uh, us here in Italy, Maserati or other brands is, I think we, we moved a little bit ahead from this approach that our predecessors used in terms of completely ignoring uh, the heritage and what we bu were built on and, and always doing something completely fresh because that created a dramatic, dramatic inconsistency in the, in the storytelling. And the reality is, while that is fascinating uh, looking back, but commercially, it's not necessarily the, the, the recipe to success because our customers, and I don't mean the customers of the Italian cars, I mean us humans in general, we just happen to be a species that, that prefers a certain level of consistency. Uh, you can check that every time there's a new song on the radio, you try to connect it to another song you've heard. Every time a new car launches, Every time the comments will start, oh, it looks like this, it looks like that. And that's not necessarily meant negatively. It just helps everyone to ground the new, what they see. And that also helps with commercial success. So if you completely throw away what you've done five years ago, you always have to force the customer to completely reacquaint, relearn the design language of the brand. And that is not necessarily the right thing to do. So I think what you see coming now from Italy, we still have this beautiful approach to design that 
it's not necessarily all just one-way evolution, maybe what you see in the northern, northern countries. There's still the appetite for experimentation. There's still the appetite to mix latest technology, but also with hand sculpture. After all, it's the country of Michelangelo, but also Leonardo Vinci, da Vinci who created um, art as a almost byproduct of science. But at the same time, I think we are stepping more considerably uh, in terms of not to put off our customer every time we're showing a new car. Hmm. It's almost an oxymoron, a German designing Italian cars, stern versus sexy, over-engineered versus past the cappuccino. How does that jibe? So, you know, we're living in, an, in a society where you call me German because I carry a German passport and I was, I was born in Germany. But I would say I left Germany, what is now probably 17, 18 years ago, if you add my studies in England, uh, even longer. I lived more than 20 years outside Germany. Um, and so I would say, um, yes, I, 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 I grew up in Germany and, and of course grew up in that kind of culture. And I have to admit every four years when it's World Cup time, it's all about Germany, I have to admit. <laughs> but if we, if we ignore uh, football for a moment or soccer for a moment, uh, I, I consider myself a global citizen. Uh, I had to design German cars in Germany. I had to um, design American products in the US and now I'm designing Italian products. And honestly, I also learned that in the US, I think us international designers uh, who come into a different country to design a product, it's not just me, there's many examples. We have this incredible uh, advantage of looking at the brand from the outside coming in. If I look back into, you know, all the way back to 2005 when I came to the US and I had the chance to work on, let's say, Chrysler product. At that time in, the, in, in Germany, Chrysler was known for the Crossfire and the 300. Fantastic products, cool products, American products. And then you come to the US and you realize that for a lot of people in the US, Chrysler did not have the same glow and excitement that it had for me coming from Germany. So what I was able to do is infuse a lot of self-confidence into the design team, reminding them on what an amazing brand they're working at. So fast forward to you, to Italy. You know, of course, when you come to Italy, which is a country, it's been all about design. There were indeed a couple of headlines in some magazines about uh, the fact that there's a now a German in, in, in charge of the design. But number one, uh, design is a team sport. It's never really about just who leads the design. It's always the whole team. But even if you look at the team, it's a very international team. But you have to remind yourself, there's another incredibly important, iconic, cultural, relevant Italian product. It's the espresso. And guess what? There's not a single Italian espresso bean in the espresso. The espresso beans come from around the world. It's the process that was invented in Northern Italy that, was, uh, that creates the espresso. So the way I look at us as design, including myself, we are the Kiki di Caffè, which is Italian for coffee beans. And we come from around the world, but we respect, we study and we apply the Italian design process. And that allows us still to create iconic Italian design. You grew up near Braunschweig. You went to the Hochschule Braunschweig, which most people in North America might not know uh, is in the backyard of Volkswagen. Correct. Did you want to work for Volkswagen as a designer? Uh, you know what? Um, I, I don't think I can say yes or no. I, I would say um, Braunschweig for me was uh, one of many steps to understand uh, my right of existence as, as, a, as a creative person. Prior to that, I had uh, um, tried free arts at a, at a free art school for a year. Uh, prior to that, I did internships at a graphic design agency. And Braunschweig was, was predominantly a product design, industrial design course. So at that moment, I wasn't even sure that, that car design was, was going to be my destiny. What happened, though, is just like you say, Braunschweig is in the backyard of, of Wolfsburg or Volkswagen, and they were offering a design course dedicated to the car. And at that moment, I had the chance to actually meet uh, Klaus Bischoff, who then went on to become the head of design for the Volkswagen group. And at that time, he was a junior designer helping with the students. But it was my first interaction with, with one of the greats of the industry who, who would later then move on to, into his current role. And then, you know, the flirt started and the understanding and the, and the passion started about, um, about car design. But parallel at that time, through a, another coincidence, I also 
had a chance to take a peek into Mercedes-Benz design through an internship uh, at the same time. So uh, there was Volkswagen on one side, there was Mercedes on the other side. But honestly, at that time, it was all about me learning from the best and, and uh, trying to become a designer. Uh, the passion at that time was still in my bedroom, the Lamborghini Countach on the wall, or of course, Maserati as the brand. You had the opportunity to learn at the right hand of your first boss, Michael Maurer at uh, Mercedes-Benz and actually Motor Trend in 2020 put you on the list of 50 key players in the auto in the auto industry, the power list as they called it. And there was Mr. Maurer and there you were. That had to be an enormous accomplishment to end up next to your first boss, who I'm sure taught you a tremendous amount about this business. You know what? Um, let's start with, with, with these lists. I have still no idea why I qualify to be on such a list. But regardless, I take this always as a compliment to my team because I firmly believe in this as a team sport. So any, any um, award or list that has me listed or awarded personally, for me is just um, a representation of the team. I wish uh, these lists would include full teams or they would give awards to full teams. But more importantly, I think you're hitting an important point. Um, I mentioned Klaus Bischoff earlier, who I met in Braunschweig, then Michael Mauer, who now is head of Porsche. As, as a matter of fact, he also at one point was the head of design for the whole Volkswagen group. So again, uh, I had the incredible opportunity to have as my first boss, such a talented guy. And, and what Michael told me is not only to continue the passion of design and apply it to Mercedes-Benz, but his leadership style a leadership style of, of family, of being friends, uh, not of going clocking in in the morning, checking back out in the evening, that's it. It was, it was truly uh, a life beyond, you know, eight to five. You know, if you become a designer, it is, it is your life, it is your work. And that's something that Michael was really able to convey. But as you probably know, I went on to, to work again with other amazing people, Ralph Gilles, um, my current uh, boss, uh, global design boss, and uh, also best friend. Uh, also learned so much from him as a as a mentor. Because you said earlier, when a German comes to Italy, I would I would take that historically back to when the German came to the U.S. Because at that time I came there as a Mercedes expat, and I was still very German at that time. And Ralph not only introduced me to uh, what is really American design, but he also helped me become to uh, uh, adopt to the American style of management and leading a design team. So I think I probably owe him the most of all the people I interacted with. Yeah, we've had Ralph on this program who was a remarkable interview and, and a remarkable person uh, yes. just in, in general. Let's talk about your work at Maserati. We, for me, it starts and ends with one of your latest products with the MC20. You said it was an amazing honor to touch that machine. What are you most proud of with the MC20, which, by the way, turns heads at, at every opportunity when it's on the road? You know what? It's interesting you ask that. Pride does not come to mind when I think about the MC20. It is, it is an endless amount of gratitude and a certain level of relief mixed with maybe satisfaction that we were able to deliver a product that I think is reviewed from people other than me or my team, people look at this objectively, viewed as something that very much fits the line of Maserati and is gonna be a car that will be talked about long after I'm gone and my team are gone and will appear in Concours d'Elegances and will go into collections. And, and this is something, Jason, I cannot stretch for you and, the, and, and your listeners or viewers on YouTube, um, this kind of responsibility because you can imagine when someone says, well, first of all, uh, you, get a, you get a chance at leading Maserati design in itself as a responsibility. But then when first there's those rumors and there's first conversations and then suddenly it becomes official that we're doing, we're going back to designing a super sports car. There is a moment of joy, but I guarantee you, Jason, it didn't last longer than maybe half a day because then this, this weight on your shoulder way it comes in because you're realizing this is not a car for a three-year lease contract. This is a car, again, they're going to speak about in 50 years, maybe beyond that. And this responsibility still sends shivers down my spine. And, and when I say, when I see the, you know, all the love and the respect we're getting from the, uh, for the car, 
Um, yes, there are awards, most beautiful uh, cars in many, many countries. But more importantly, the love I get directly versus uh, via social medias from the customers on Instagram, for example, that just means so much. But like I said, pride is not the word that comes to mind. It's really more of a relief. And, and uh, I'm so happy for my team to have able to conquer that, that this big mountain. You know, Klaus, I want to go back to something that you said a moment ago. You said you're designing a future collector's car if you're designing mm -hmm. a Maserati. And you have said that that in itself is a monstrosity of a responsibility on your shoulders. So I'm assuming you sleep at night, but you're probably, you're probably left awake many nights too. Yeah, you know, Jason, it is, um, again, coming back to the power of the team. Um, I am not a dictator, a design dictator. You know, the, the reason I can actually most of the nights sleep well is simply because uh, I sit down with my team and we harvest this energy and the knowledge of the team because uh, I was able to surround myself with incredible talented people in all my steps of my career. And I think that really made us strong as a team. And so what we do is, in the particular case of, of the MC20, I wouldn't say we talked more than we sketched, but there was, a, there was a good balance towards the conversation that we had amongst us as a team because any Maserati, but mostly with a car like the MC20, we had to solve in our head, what do we need to do to elevate the brand? Because this is more than just a car, it's, it's a brand ambassador. And how can we do that? What is our right of existence? How, what is already happening in the supercar market? And there's plenty of product. And how can we be different? How can we be Maserati? How can we be Maserati even without a Trident on the car? So there's a lot of debate and conversation that goes in there. And, and I think, I hope you, you, my team would, would agree that my leadership style is very much about forcing them to give me their honest opinion about what they think we should do. Now, at the end of the day, it becomes my responsibility together with other leaders at Maserati to then digest this recommendation. But the, the outcome of this, this conversation then is that the car almost had designed itself in our heads. And we only have to basically put the pen to the paper and, and sketch it. Sounds a little bit easier than it was, obviously. But there's an important role in this kind of philosophical debate. You've also said that there are visual things, uh, the face that you see on the MC20 and other aspects mm -hmm. that, will be, that, that will foreshadow where Maserati goes in the future. And you also, and you said you did not want to design a car for Instagram. You didn't want to design a car that shouts, look at me and is too aggressive, but you wanted to design that visual value, something that was made it a rolling sculpture to some extent. Have you recaptured what it means to be Maserati? So I think there's, there's two points I would, I would, I would say to that. Uh, number one, why do I think visual longevity is such an important part? And it's not only because it'll go into a concourse de Legons in 30, 40 years. But if you look at where we are as a society and the role of a luxury brand, and we are a luxury brand, I think our obligation, and when I say our, I mean all luxury brands, the obligation is to deliver visual and qualitative longevity. Because I give you the opposite example. Um, luxury brands I do not have respect for are the ones that are commanding a high price, and they're probably delivering good quality in terms of product, but there's no visual longevity. In other words, you know, if you look at some fashion brands, they force you to rebuy every six months. Now that for me, you know, can be perceived as luxury because it's gonna be expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the role that we need to play in the level of being relevant and sustainable. Because I do believe that, you know, if, I, if you allow me to speak about sustainability for a moment, because it's very close to my heart and not sure. only mine, but us as a brand and as, as Stellantis, is that, to be sustainably relevant, relevant, you can do two things. You can continue to buy a high quantity of product and make sure it's either recycled or it's recyclable, or you can buy less, but make sure that that one object that you buy has that longevity, qualitative and visual. And I think that's what we're doing with Maserati, with an MC20 or other Maseratis too. Point number one. Point number two I would like to make, coming back also to the rolling sculpture comment, is Again, looking at society. Now, obviously I've lived in many societies and understand there's a different approach and understanding of car culture. 
a big difference between um, USA and Germany, for example. In Germany, there's a very critical debate about cars in general, luxury cars, SUVs. And so now I can design a car that looks like, you know, that shouts, look at me, you know, I could put add, add extra spoilers, extra air intakes, and, and a lot of edges and decorative elements. But is it the right move? Because do I really want to create this kind of attention that sometimes can be negative? Or do I create a car, and that's what we've done with an MC20, but also other products, that really only use the minimum required air intakes, that tries to avoid spoilers, that creates truly a rolling sculpture, and by doing that, adds visual value to the environment and hopefully is appreciated versus creating negative context. And the good news is from all I can hear and all I see is we have exactly accomplished that with the MC20, but also other products like the Glecale. And you spent thousands of hours in the wind tunnel in order to ensure that the downforce on the MC20 was sufficient for the vehicle without adding a spoiler. This is a, a completely new, new format to some extent, especially for Maserati. Yeah, you know what? It was very clear in the beginning that we wanted to try to, uh, to, to work without a spoiler. Number one, it's, it's visual noise. There's a, there's a space for a spoiler when you really go track and you do a track car, etc. But for a, a grand touring supercar, we wanted to remain as pure as, as possible. So we try to avoid the spoiler as, a, as an add-on piece. And secondary, if you do a moving spoiler, which we could have done to hide it uh, while you're driving it, it adds weight and it, it compromises um, the space of your luggage compartment. So also that was not a good idea. So instead what we did, exactly what you did and what you say is to be almost real-time designing the car with the aerodynamicists in, in, in Modena. Actually, wind tunnel, yes, but these days is actually all artificial. The, the computer does that for us un until the final uh, check in the, in the physical wind tunnel. And so we did the car real-time with, with aerodynamics, and that allowed us to design the car like a wing. If you, if you, for example, I'll give you one interesting, um, interesting detail. If you look at the section of the wheel arches, normally they are very sculpted, they're peaking, they're round. On the MC20, they, they're not completely flat, but they're more flat than, 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 than round. And so even the surface of the wheel arches creates downforce by being basically a wing surface. When you think about the future and where the industry is going, it is undeniable that the electric vehicle movement is picking up speed, if you will. You drive, or at least you did drive, a Gran Cabrio with a naturally aspirated V8. And you love the sound of a morning cold start with a V8. Who doesn't, right? But you did something interesting as you started to examine how EVs would change design and change product development. You challenged yourselves with an interesting exercise. You took a video of a 1954 Pininfarina-designed A6 GCS, you say, the most beautiful Maserati ever, ever put together, driving through the streets of Italy. You muted the engine sound and played classical music. And what came to mind when you did that? Goosebumps. It was literally goosebumps. And it was this eureka moment of the future is going to be great. And, and mind you, this exercise I did um, exactly when I arrived at Maserati, because at that time, it was clear for us designers who live in the future that this will come. We didn't know at what speed and, and with exact every little consequence. But it wasn't done last year or two years ago. It was done seven years ago. Uh, because there was this challenge about what if, which we didn't know at that time, we would go electric. What if sound, the engine sound would go away? Electric cars still produce some sound that they have to do for legal reasons. So we did this exercise. But you know what? The interesting thing was, uh, while the video looked great with the original sound, I would argue it almost looked more emotional without the sound of the car. Because suddenly, you over-amplify the, the visual impact of the car. Uh, I don't want to make um, uh, advertisement, but there's a fantastic TV show um, where all characters, are, a, part of, a, a few chosen, are blind. And, and I struggled first with, with the concept of the show, but I, once I got into it, the show did an excellent job of telling the world uh, the, through the, well, I almost said through the eyes, but through the ears of someone who's only dependent on sound. 
and was fascinating. And so we did it the other way around. We basically created something that now going forward will almost exclusively depend on, on visual. So what you need to do is you need to remind yourself then in the conversations with engineering and, and packaging, et cetera, we need to make sure that we maintain this aspect of rolling sculpture, which means we need to have amazing proportion. We need to have amazing design. And I would add, if you allow me, I would add one more uh, anecdote to it. Uh, when we had the lockdowns, one of the many lockdowns here in Italy during the pandemic, streets became silent. And suddenly, when you would hear a high horsepower car, like, for example, my Gran Cabre, which I still own and will always own, announcing itself from five minutes away, <laughs> I started to ask myself, is this something that will be accepted beyond car fanatics? And, and I, I'm not so sure it will be, to be honest. And I think um, you will earn much more respect if you almost enter the scene silently. So I'm absolutely optimistic about that aspect. Wow, that's an interesting perspective, one that I have not heard. The sound of the internal combustion engine may be ostracized to some extent. You know what? Um, I, I love that cold start. I do. Um, you know, it's, it's for me. My car is is a reward. Uh, I'm not driving it on a daily basis. I usually drive it over the uh, weekend. I will do so again this weekend. Uh, and yes, when I go into my garage and I start that car, it's 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 more than just starting a car. It's like yes, now the special part of the weekend will start, and I'm going to go to the mountains or to the sea or any of the beautiful places around Torino. So it's really a hedonistic, uh, rewarding um, part of driving the car. But I also admit, if I drive the car on a long distance, just two weeks ago, we were driving the car down to Saint-Tropez, we were driving some of the mountain passes of the Alpine, of the, of the Mediterranean Alps. And as you're by yourself and you're going through these amazing, beautiful natural roads, these curvy roads through nature, I were wishing at that moment that the car would be electric. And I could just um, appreciate the handling of the car, which is fascinating, and just enjoy being there, driving the convertible with the roof open, be there with the nature, driving an amazing car, which is stunning inside out, but even further mute the sound. So it already has crossed my mind that I would be one of the first customers, probably. Wow, unbelievable. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Maserati's head of design, Klaus Busse. And to see my interview with Klaus, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Please like and subscribe to see more than 50 episodes. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep. Technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars. From industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back to the program. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now the continuation of my conversation with Maserati's head of design, Klaus Busse. And to see my interview with Klaus, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Please like and subscribe to see more than 50 episodes. Let's talk about the structure of the company these days. Uh, of course, uh, well known that uh, Stellantis is the entity, is the um, uh, kind of the, the mother company, uh, if you will. You've gone through your share of iterations, Mercedes-Benz, Daimler, Chrysler, Fiat, Chrysler, automobiles, Stellantis. You're a survivor, Klaus. You, you have managed your, to navigate all of those companies and still exist here. So what does Stellantis mean? And tell me a, a little bit about the French influence in, in, into the company as a whole, now that uh, Peugeot has, uh, um, has uh, amalgamated with uh, the rest of the family. So I, I would say two things. Uh, number one, Stellantis, and, and I can speak now uh, looking back of over a year of, of us working together as all 14 brands, is, is a world of opportunity. Um, it allows um, brands like Maseratis to, uh, Maserati to uh, use um, excellence and know-how where needed but remain independent where they want. So uh, I think um, it's an absolutely fantastic opportunity. 
just like you see with other luxury labels, there are there's Caring, there's LVMH. There, those are basically the two houses for all the other fashion labels. You know, there's no independent Gucci or or Balenciaga. They're all part of of something bigger, and we are part of something bigger. And this gives us uh, amazing access to technology. Number one. Number two. Um, I would not. I would. I never looked at this from. Is there French influence? I, I would not say that at all because. We are a truly international uh, company we, with brands, of course, in the US, with a brand in Germany, with Opel, with brands in Italy, with brands in France. So I would, I would say fully passionately about Stellantis that this is not a nation-led uh, company, uh, whether you pick France or any other country. It is truly an international uh, company of excellence. And so for me, I'm absolutely enthusiastic about the opportunities we had already and we continue to have. In your role now, uh, looking at, um, I guess, the, the purview of multiple brands across Europe, how, how has your own function changed? What are you looking at differently now? So uh, one aspect that uh, I haven't really talked about much publicly is that other than Maserati, I have other roles um, of one each is uh, I'm leading what we call the Stellantis Design Studio, SDS. And that basically is uh, before rumors start, I'm not leading all of Stellantis design automotive design, but I'm leading all of Stellantis non-automotive design. So what that means is we are basically, um, on one hand, it's an internal agency that allows for brand amplification to do whatever we feel we want to do beyond the car. And you can imagine for Maserati, that's why I you know, love this second role I have, is the opportunity to work with, with a team that allows us to go beyond car design. And I'll leave it to your imagination what that might be. Um, but furthermore, we're now allowing external uh, companies in that are seeking for design expertise to tap into the design expertise of Stellantis. And we can do that through the services of uh, the Stellantis Design Studio as a creative agency. So the reason I mentioned that is because that allows me basically to interact with each of our 14 brands because any brand, any company could come to us and say, we would like a product designed by Maserati but they could also say we would like to have a product designed by Jeep or by Ram. And that's something that my agency, my team facilitates. And so because of that, I'm forced to interact with all 14 brands, not just with Maserati. And that, again, takes me back to my enthusiasm about Stellantis. What have you learned with the interaction of all 14 brands? I mean, this is a wide um, swath that you are cutting now. Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would say we're coming back to the culture of nations and I would not necessarily say the individuals but what the brands are representing um, it goes it's easy for your listeners to understand when I speak about Ram how uniquely American that brand is but you can say the same about Dodge and the Mopar community uh, you can say it about Jeep even though it's a very international brand but with very American roots so so on one hand i I need to not only understand Dodge Ram or Jeep I need to understand the American customer, the American culture, and what an American product represents. And the same I had to do for Italy, the same I already had to do for Germany, even though uh, working with Opel is a different representation of Germany than maybe, uh, maybe Mercedes, but equally fascinating. And then, of course, there's, there's French uh, design and French culture. And that, for me, has been an area I've never worked in before. So to have the chance to work with my French colleagues and, and also working, helping them with their brands, like I said, beyond cars, and understanding what they're trying to do for me has been a very, very fascinating journey. Let's talk philosophy for a few moments. And speaking of Ralph Gilles, we've had him on this program, along with Frank Stevenson, Ian Callum recently. Uh, you, you join a very short list of designers that we've had on this program. But I've asked them kind of similar questions around design philosophy. What are the enduring characteristics a car design should have? At the end of the day, um, the way I look at it is uh, you probably, I can give you something very pragmatic and I would use probably something that they might have said before, proportion, longevity, functionality, etc. But I, I want to answer this a little bit more on a higher level. Um, and I want to come back to this, what is such an important topic for me is society. I think at the end of the day, a car 
and car culture. Um, culture, by definition, is in connection with society. Culture changes, society changes, and therefore car design has to change. It has to address um, the, the changes in society. Certain things will never go away. You always have to make sure you can get in and out of a car comfortably. You have to make sure it's safe. You have to make sure it's ergonomically. You have to make sure that the design, again, is, is visually, uh, visually pleasing, has longevity, etc. But these are fundamental uh, building bricks on which I always try to build something more relevant for society. I would, I would, I, I gave you an example already about the MC20 and, and not being a car that looks shout at me, but I want to give you an example of, of my previous uh, role where um, I, I was also in charge of the design of Fiat, where we designed, which is, I don't think we, you have it in the US, but the third generation of the beautiful Fiat 500, this very iconic Italian car. And again, when we designed the car, we looked back at the first and the second generation. The first generation came out in 1957. It was the democratization of mobility. The car looked op uh, optimistic. The car uh, had a cute factor. It was Dolce Vita in Italia, right? So it very much represented what was going on in Italy and in Europe at that time. It was, you know, the years after the war, people started to travel again, enjoying life again. And then in 2007, we did the second generation. Now 2007, you remember in the US, the yes, we can movement, right? So again, there was a lot of optimism. When the car came out, we gave it a lot of beautiful pop, poppy colors, the yellows, the red, the car was vibrant, big, optimistic, googly eyes because it represented this kind of culture. Of course, yes, we can was very much America, but there was this, there was this period uh, worldwide where there was optimism about the world growing together and, and being a more collaborative and peaceful place. Now, coming to when we launched the, the, the latest iteration two years ago, unfortunately, just before the pandemic, of course, we did not forecast the pandemic or worse things to come later, but we realized that there was a certain weight on society spawned by connectivity, internet, globalization. And, and so we took a more serious approach to the car. The car didn't launch with any uh, bright colors. There's no yellow. There's, there was no red at the beginning. It was a more sophisticated color. The car had a more serious look than the car from 2007. So all three cars did what they were supposed to do. They looked great. They were functionally fantastic and ergonomically fantastic. But more importantly, and hopefully this is a good example, they were respecting society, which means you had to really work hard, understand, and attempt to forecast where society will be when you launch that car. Exactly. You have to be very predictive with where you think society is going to move because you're, you're three to five to seven years ahead all the time, aren't you? Absolutely. And that's the challenge. Now, again, um, I, will not, I will not pretend we're always right. Like I said, we, there, no one predicted a pandemic or, or wars or whatnot. But I think what we do is, on, a, on literally on a daily basis, we we go beyond cars. Um, we talked about it earlier, you know, things I learned from someone like Michael Maurer. Your design job does not stop when you leave the studio. Every documentary, every newspaper article, the coffee at the piazza, looking at people, uh, is is everything is adding to that tremendous complicated puzzle about you know who is our customer, not as an individual, but as a representative of a culture of a society. Give me a list of consumer products whose design you simply cannot get enough of. Phones, watches, clothes, eyeglasses. Uh, yeah, well, I have to admit, um, apart from cars, uh, the one thing where I hate myself for is that I start to fall in love with sneaker design. Okay. Now, the reason I say I hate myself for it, because sneaker design is doing so many things wrong. Right, it it is a temporary product because you know you you know they wear off and and yet they're so complicated design. They're not very easily recyclable because most of them are glued together with so many pieces. You cannot really recycle the thing again. Then most of them have white soles and they get dirty the first thirty minutes you wear them. So there's so much wrong about sneakers, and yet I love them. I love the creativity. I love um, what what brands like Nike have done over over all these years to turn a product that was simply allowing you to get from A to B comfortably into a, a cultural icon. I, I have a lot of respect for that, even though 
I'm fully aware that I'm contradicting myself when I speak about luxury earlier and, and with all the def uh, defects that a, that a shoe basically has a shoe design. But that's probably the one area that, that I'm fascinated by. Other than, of course, all designers, we follow electronics and technology, but less from a pure product design point of view, more from a functionality in what it allows us to do. So who do you admire? Uh, let's, let's talk watches. You know what? Uh, I'm not a watch guy. Um, I, I wear um, an Apple Watch. Um, again, I'm, okay. the, the, the TV program I was mentioning earlier was Apple TV, so I'm, I'm not getting paid by Apple here. But, <laughs> but Apple, Apple Watch, because it, I love the functionality of it, and, and I'm not going to speak what it is, you all know. Um, I actually, um, a good friend of mine, he is uh, the former uh, editor of, uh, of a big magazine in, in Germany. Um, and, and he kept telling me, Klaus, you need to wear a watch. It's, it, it's part of, you know, who you need to be as a designer. It's branding yourself, blah, blah, blah. And I, I can't because I, I just not interested in, in that aspect. Now, I respect watch design. I follow it closely because there's a very close link to luxury and a very close link to what we do with our cars. Don't forget Maserati have clocks inside, right? So, mm -hmm. of course, we follow and look what, what watch design does. And I'm fascinated by it. Also, with, with recent watches that are now going into the digital age and, and the conflict they're facing going from this beautifully hand-assembled, complicated piece into basically um, a circular screen on a beautiful leather wristband. So also that industry is facing similar changes and, uh, and challenges that we face with cars. So I'm, I'm observing the industry. I'm following it. Uh, but I don't think I am and will ever be um, a real aficionado. I do know what an Audemars Piguet goes for. I know how they, how you know the value of these of these watches. But like I said, um, I'm not following it with the same enthusiasm. It's more like uh, a part of who I am, being the head of design of Maserati. I pay attention to them, but I'm not passionate about them. You do follow one thing you are passionate about that I see is you follow Formula One racing quite closely, and I think you had a yes. hand in the livery of the Alfa Romeo Formula One car, correct? Yeah, so Formula One, um, there, there's two aspects to why I'm so passionate about it. Number one, yes, during my time as head of Alfa Romeo design, we were designing deliveries for the team. And, and when you do that, you get a, a really beautiful insight into the workings of a Formula One uh, team because you meet, you, you have, you know, one of the seasons we actually had the car in the studio, of course, in a super secret locked uh, uh, location where we already taped up delivery for the next season. And, and it was just fascinating, you know, and, and it was usually my last thing uh, every day before I left the studio, going to that beautiful room, looking at this amazing machine of technology, because it's really inspiring. And, and I want to take the, maybe also create the bridge to Maserati. If you work for a brand that is born in racing, that means you cannot be sentimental about your past because you lose. There's not a single race car on the planet that will ever run a race that was designed by looking, oh, look at this beautiful race car we did 20 years ago, our last season. The one thing you always have to do, and maybe that's, again, it's Italian design when we, when we speak about the fact we always do the best we can in this moment. And I would also add, uh, because of that Maserati, I always see design almost secondary because number one is the performance, is how the car handles and what it, what it represents. But I would also do another shout out to um, the new ownership of, of Formula One. I think what they've done with social media, uh, allowing us to live and, and laugh and share our stories about Formula One every single day with amazing footage and stories on Instagram versus, you know, when we grew up, it was, it was Sunday every two weeks and that was it, maybe Monday morning newspaper. And then you had to wait another two weeks. Now uh, Formula One is present every single day. And I think they're doing a fantastic job also with, um, you know, the, the TV show, uh, what is it, Drive, Drive to Survive, survive. Mm -hmm. which, which brought my son into Formula One, which I thought was a lost cause. I thought I was truly dead to that generation that was not interested in cars. And heads off to those guys for, for raising these emotions. We had Stefano Domenicali on this program. And he talked about the influence and the way that they want to open up the world to uh, Formula One to, to pull the curtain back and to expose to the stories and the characters and the, and the actors, if you will, in a very, very interesting ongoing play. So you, you, you have hit on exactly what, what he said. Let me ask you a final thing. And I've asked this of the other designers on this program. 
How do you want to be remembered as a designer? Uh, I don't want to be remembered as a designer. I want our product to be remembered. And I don't want any product to be remembered designed by Klaus Busse because that is simply not true. I want our products to be remembered by that generation of designers coming from Cento Stile Maserati. I want to be remembered by the people I work with, hopefully as someone who is a team player and that allowed them to be the very best of themselves. Wonderful. Klaus, thank you so much for being part of this program. It was an absolute pleasure to actually see you on my laptop and not in the Delta <laughs> Business Club Lounge in Detroit. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks again to Maserati's head of design, Klaus Busse. And to see my interview with Klaus, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. You can like and subscribe there to see more than 50 episodes. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. Comedy Central Radio brings you the biggest names in comedy. And Monday through Thursday, listen to The Bonfire. It's The Bonfire, everybody. With Big J Okerson and Dan So. It is a cavalcade of fun. Children should not be hearing this, but you should if you're an adult. The Bonfire. Every Monday through Thursday, starting at 6 p.m. East. Yeah, feeling great. Pretty crazy. Exclusively on Comedy Central Radio. Sirius XM 95. Back in full effect. I mean, we're all back full effect. Or listen anytime on the Sirius XM app. Morning, sunshine. I'm Robin Mead. Let's jump right in and get you ready. Morning Express on HLN is the bright way to start your day. Some of the other top stories today that we're following for you. With the latest news that affects you. There may be a breakthrough for a stimulus deal. People are being advised to cancel or postpone outdoor activities. Thank you for letting us be the ones to start your day. Morning Express with Robin Mead. Weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern on HLN, Sirius XM 117. Hey, this is Karen Hunter, and at Urban View, we have a family of tough people. We are about making change. Who are willing to not just work, but to have a vision. We demand that the people take action, use their power to make change. That's what really Urban View and the Madison Show is all about. We invite you and we challenge you to create the world you want to live in. It's not your typical talk channel. Urban View, Sirius XM 126.